Hi, this is Dave Summers, and welcome to AMA Edgewise. Alan Adamson, a noted industry expert in all disciplines of branding and author of Brand Simple, Brand Digital, and The Edge 50 Tips from Brands That Lead, is also co-founder and managing partner of Metaforce, a firm dedicated to helping businesses diagnose growth strategies and nimbly execute programs in the face of market evolution. Joel Steckel is professor of marketing and vice dean of doctoral education at NYU Stern School of Business. Joel has published numerous articles in publications, including Journal of Marketing Research, Journal of Retailing, Marketing Science, Interfaces, and Journal of Consumer Research. He was the founding president of the INFORMS, I-N-F-O-R-M-S, Society for Marketing Science. And together, they're co-authors of a great new book entitled Shift Ahead, How the Best Companies Stay Relevant in a Fast-Changing World. Gentlemen, welcome to AMA Edgewise. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So tell me about the book. Let's start with you, Alan. Why did you write this book? More and more clients were coming to me and saying, gee, our business is down, competition's eating our lunch, and can you help me? And it wasn't simple as putting lipstick on a pig. It was a very big challenge. Their brands were becoming and their businesses were becoming less relevant. My reason wasn't as systematic. It's more of a story. Alan was a guest speaker in one of my classes. And we had a wonderful session with my students. What we did, actually, was we found each other finishing the other sentences as we were going along. And after that class, we went out for a beer. And Alan had this idea, and he just put it on the table. And it came at a very convenient time for me, and I did it to really learn about something that I knew was important, I knew was going to become more important, and wanted to know more about. Okay, so we understand what the challenges are, we understand what the the requests are, the need for a book like this. Why do people need a guidebook like this? Why is it so hard to to shift and to change? Well, the, the first reason people need it is that the world is changing faster and faster. And when I started in marketing, we had a meetings at Procter & Gamble, we would plan for the whole year. We would spend three days discussing what the year would be Lay like. Lay it all out. Yeah, and uh, the annual plan. And now, uh, by the time the meeting's finished, your cheese has moved. And so, to some extent, the pace of change has got most businesses and organizations out of kilter. They're not able to, to be that agile. So, figuring out how to stay current is a problem that is not only for tech companies. Almost any business today is in danger of being left behind. Uh, Joel, do you have an academic perspective on that? Um, I do. And the concept of planning for a year is not enough anymore. And that's because the world is changing so fast. It's kind of like one year of planning is seven dog years (laughs) of evolution. Exactly. The New York Times columnist and author Tom Friedman In his latest book, Thank You for Being Late, talks about three forces that are really forcing this change. Globalization, information technology, and climate change. And so when you take those three together, the environment is really changing every day. Mm -hmm. So somebody picks up the book, they read it, they think it's awesome. What are the key steps 
that they need to start, that the first couple of things they need to start down this path, this process of strategic change? Where do they begin? Well, one of the things we found, we spoke to more than 100 organizations, big companies, small companies, private, public. And the unfortunate fact is most companies fail to shift ahead. So there are more ways you can not be able to shift ahead than there are simple ways to shift ahead. Mm -hmm. But the first thing that people have to be aware of is that human nature makes this hard. We talk in the book about most organizations are sitting in Marty Crane's chair from Frasier. And, you know, they're more comfortable with the familiar. So, you know, most organizations are just very comfortable with the way things are. And if you realize you're starting there, saying things look pretty good to me, you realize you're already falling behind. And so part of it is just realizing how daunting a challenge it is to get out of Marty Crane's chair. Joel, I'm, cu- I'm curious about stuff that's related to this. And it's that idea of feeling safe, feeling secure kind of in what you know, the products you know, the customers you know, the services you know. But this, w- this wave of fear, almost a tsunami of fear of all things digital and internet and global and stuff like that. When somebody comes to you with that fear-based part of it and, and, and says, Joel, I'm, this is scaring me to death. You know what I mean? How do you talk them off of the, uh, the fire escape there? Well, the first thing I say is, well, the magic happens outside the comfort zone. The comfort zone then becomes Marty Crane's chair. And if the world is changing and you're staying still, then you're the loser. All right. So Marty Crane's world never changed. For any successful business, their world is changing. Right. And if you're scared, that's a good thing. <laughs> and if you're not scared, that's a bad thing. <laughs> and Andy Grove, the CEO of Intel, or the former mm-hmm. great CEO of Intel, wrote a book and is well known for the saying, only the paranoid survive. Exactly. There are tons of great stories in this book, great examples, you know, anecdotes, interview material and whatnot. Alan, just share with us maybe what's, what's one or two of them that really, you know, as, as you move on to your second book, Nudge Nudge, uh, what are some of these, you know, what's one of these stories that will, will stick with you for quite a while? You know, I, I like the National Geographic story. You know, here's a brand that's been around since the 1800s. I have them piled up in my basement still. And they almost didn't make it. And they almost didn't make it because they were so locked into tradition, to this is the way, you know, it's always been, and thinking of themselves myopically as a magazine business, sure. that even though people subscribed and put it in their basement, didn't even read it for years. And they, they never threw it away. They never threw it away. They almost didn't make it. Yeah. And and part of them making it was getting out of that myopic mm-hmm. framework and realizing that they weren't in the magazine business. They owned exploration. And if they could bring that to life. Curiosity. Um, yeah. For the marketplace. And they early on, they did a joint venture with uh, Lim Black Cruises. So sure. now you can get on a boat yeah. and you can go with a National Geographic naturalist and a National yeah. Geographic photographer takes your iPhone and gets you that amazing picture of a whale in Alaska. And so all of a sudden you have an experience and you're living that life. And then when you get on social media and yeah. said, I just did a great trip and it was done by National Geographic, yeah. that's shareable versus no, that's, that, your that magazine is, in the basement. That is a wonderful story. And it's amazing how that, that, that sort of concept just the idea in your head can sprout legs. I remember growing up with National Geographic mm-hmm. and, you know, the first stuff I ever knew about the moon and stuff right. like that was, was all from National Geographic. Joel, any favorite stories that will stick with you oh, from the book? Oh, yes, yes. I'll pick Kodak sure. to start. I'm going to say Kodak because as we developed that story and did the research for that story, it showed me that I'd been thinking about Kodak the wrong way 
for years and years. My presumption, along with many of the people that I have spoken to about this, mm -hmm. was that Kodak was just caught blindsided with the revolution into digital photography. And that they just weren't ready for it, weren't prepared, and when technology changed, they were blindsided and surprised. essentially out in the street and surprised. Well, what what we learned was that they were anything but surprised. They knew it was coming. They knew to the year and even month that the introduction was likely to come. Yeah. And one of the reasons they knew that was because they held the original patents on digital photography. What their issue was, their problem, was what we call in the book golden handcuffs. Sure. That they had what they felt was intense pressure from Wall Street to continue dividends. And in order to continue dividends, they had to continue to sell the high margin sure. products. So ma they made a choice, an incorrect one in, in hindsight, to satisfy Wall Street mm -hmm. and not follow the technology, the technology that they had the patent for. Sure. This is that's super interesting stuff. I, I I was like two years ago. I read this biography of Schumpeter and some of the stuff that came up in that. Some of his thoughts, the the Schumpeterian thoughts, echo a lot of what even Jeff Bezos is talking about now, which is basically, okay, you stockholders, thanks for your money. I'll get back to you on the dividends. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? I'm putting money into R&D. I'm putting money into innovation. I'm building out my footprint, you know, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, anything Kodak did other than film was going to be less profitable. Film was so profitable if they made any product change, the only thing for sure is they would make less money next sure. week. Do not kill the cash cow. Right. And I like the Jeff Bezos analogy. We tell the story in the book about Facebook and and Mark Zuckerberg and and his relationship with Wall Street and the purchase of Instagram. At the time, Wall Street did not like that purchase. Sure. But Facebook, management at Facebook, understood that was the right thing to do. And why did they understand it? How did they understand that was the right thing to do? Because they knew something that Wall Street didn't. They knew that their customers, the people who used the platform, were posting more and more mm -hmm. photographs and starting to post videos on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So what they did essentially was buy their future competition. Sure. And today, at least, it's a generational phenomenon, but my kids wouldn't touch Facebook. Yeah. They are focused on Instagram. Yeah, it's, it's neat. Uh, how, and how all that has happened really, again, you talk about speed, it's happened so fast. Again, great stories, great interviews, great stuff in the book, but I'm kind of interested in behind-the-scenes type of question. Are there interviews... Or people you wanted to talk to or you dreamed about talking to, you know, and, oh, if only I could get so-and-so to return my call, it would be awesome to talk to them. You can share with us now. It's okay. Your, your secrets are we, safe We with each us. have one. Is, okay, go ahead, yeah, please. I'll give you mine first because uh, when we were developing the book concept, we were brainstorming as to who do we want to get to. I mean, there were the obvious ones. We, of course, wanted to talk to big companies and small and, and Facebook. But I wanted to talk to Lorne Michaels. How could he keep a television show on that long? How did he keep Saturday Night like, fresh? When did he figure out it was time to reinvent it? When did he keep it the same? And we got pretty close until his assistant finally called up and says, no, Lauren doesn't want to do it. So I was, you know, I, that was close. a, yeah, close doesn't count. Sure. <laughs> Joel? Well, mine is Roger Federer. 
I'm a huge tennis fan and a huge fan of Roger Federer, so I thought this was my in to actually get to talk to him. And it's because of changes that he's made at several points in his career, both at the beginning and currently. Quickly, at the beginning of his career, he was what's called classic serve-and-volley player in that he was very offensive, rushed the net at every opportunity. Indeed, that's how he beat Pete Sampras when he was 19 years old at Wimbledon in 2001. In 2002, they changed the grass on the courts at Wimbledon. It becomes a different grass. The ball bounces differently. The court plays much slower. Hmm. And Roger Federer loses in the first round. So he retools his game, then becomes more of a baseline player, an attacking baseline player, but a baseline player nonetheless. And he wins the next five Wimbledons, six of the next seven, and now has seven overall. Mm -hmm. At the end of his career, while his career is not over yet, even though he's 36 years old, Mm -hmm. he's, as of today, the second-ranked player in the world. He wasn't winning anymore, or at least the big titles, so he changes his backhand. He changes how offensive he becomes on the return of serve. Here he is, an individual who is arguably the best player in the history of the game, at the age of 33-34, retooling for a second time and how he plays the game. And again, he rises to the pinnacle and becomes the number one player in the world. Just almost becomes a different player. That's right. And that's the lesson learned, you know, because one of the challenges is the more successful you are, the less open you are to changing. Sure. And if you're not able to change, even if you've had a winning year, you're not going to continue to win. Uh, Let's say there's an organization and it's undergoing one of these tectonic shifts. It's just happening, okay? While it's happening, while people are sort of riding the, the plate, you know what I mean, riding the iceberg or something like that, What's the role of the leader, above and beyond the day-to-day stuff, making the donuts that they typically have to do, but what special tasks or watch-outs or, t- or checklists or w- what do they need to keep in mind? What is their new role or expanded responsibilities while the organization is undergoing a shift? We did speak to a lot of leaders. Obviously, leadership is a key criteria between success and less than success. I'll give one and maybe Joe will, will give another. You know, one of the things is we found that you know, leaders that were able to, we spoke to uh, Ed Vick, who was a CEO of YNR, and he says, you have to trust your instincts a bit. Because if you wait till all the facts come in, you'll be too late. And, you know, one of the biggest challenges organizations have is that when they decide to shift, if they're too late, it doesn't matter how well they do it, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're too late. Sure. And so lots of organizations get caught in what we called analysis paralysis. Right. Every, you know, most of the big failures, Radio Shack, Toys R Us, they just study it forever and hope that the numbers will tell them that go left, go right. But by the time they see the numbers, so do their competition, mm-hmm. <laughs> so does everyone else. So one of the leadership characteristics is the ability to, you know, to make a gut call and to do it with gusto. And related to that is the ability to cope with uncertainty. You have to be comfortable with the notion that you might be wrong. Mm-hmm. As Alan says, if you wait for certainty, you're going to be too late. My old boss, John Sexton, the former president of New York University, when he spoke with us, made the point that when he decided to expand globally into places like Abu Dhabi, Shanghai, 
that he believed at the time there was only a 60% chance that the expansions would be successful. Sure. But his view was that the top of the educational pyramid was going to be shrinking for a variety of reasons, such as alternative mechanisms of knowledge delivery through information technology. Sure. And NYU, in order to remain at the top, had to make a big play. And so globalization was the path that he chose. And he modeled it by traveling the world himself mm -hmm. and teaching classes at the satellite campuses mm -hmm. and built the New York University brand around it. Mm -hmm. Both of you have either mentioned or brushed up against the, the concept and the term in our conversation here today uh, of the idea of culture. Okay, corporate culture, organizational culture. Many senior executives in many companies, some successful at the moment, stuff like that, and you talk about the strength of their culture or their years of success or something like that. On paper, people are daunted by the idea of changing a culture or evolving a culture or creating a culture. I, I guess I'm asking you a multi-part question with that setup. And the first is, can cultures change Number one and number two, can a culture be, you know, in essence, created? Can it be taught? Well, you know, do you know what I mean? It's, I'll answer that two ways. Yeah, it's a two-part question. Culture, of course, is critical to successfully shifting ahead. One dimension that everyone talks about is that you have to have a culture where people are free to fail. If people are scared to do anything new, they're, you know, they're going to be deers in headlights, and nothing will happen. But even if you get a culture comfortable with failure. You know, another thing Joel and I found is that each organization has a, a sort of a DNA, mm -hmm. and you have the skill set in that organization to sure. do certain things. And if you don't, you know, going back to Joel's story on Kodak, another reason they struggled and did not make, make it other than the golden handcuffs was that they were, from a DNA point of view, a cultural point of view, they were a chemical company. They were right. a chemical and a sales company. Sure. And they had a big board meeting, we found out, as part of the research. And there was half the company saying we should stay in chemicals and half the company saying we should get digital. And they made the right market-facing decision, but they didn't make the right DNA decision because right. they were a chemical company competing in a digital world. The chemical companies they sold, Eastman Chemicals, a billion-dollar chemical company in the South, and Sterling uh, Drug. So, so your DNA is critical. So you need to make sure both your culture is right mm -hmm. and your DNA. What was the phrase, Alan, that we coined? Well, I don't know if we made it a big deal in the book. Culture eats strategy for lunch? Yeah, that's a common phrase. Yeah. yeah, Common, but I had never heard it before. <laughs> um, I think that's a Drucker quote. Yeah. Could be Is wrong. it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, there are a couple of organizations in the book where I think the culture did change throughout. It did actually change. The two uh, I'm thinking of that come to mind uh, are both local institutions. It's not, they're not huge companies, the Central Park Conservancy mm -hmm. and Columbia Grammar School. Right. Central Park, I, I'm not sure I have the time frame right, but it was a pretty ratty place to go at one point in time. <laughs> For a long time it was ratty. Literally ratty. <laughs> <laughs> Literally and figuratively. But the park was subdivided into sections for which individuals had their own accountability. Okay. And so presenting people in the organization with accountability for maintaining and enhancing 
their particular areas of the park mm -hmm. was, I think, key to changing the culture. If Alan wants to, I'll let him talk about Columbia Grammar because his kids went there. Yeah, again, Columbia Grammar was a, a struggling private school in Manhattan. And 25 years ago when the new headmaster came on, he decided he had a vision for the culture of the place. How did it change? He wanted to make it more family-oriented school, less about perhaps certain dimensions. But to do that, he had to live it. He had to literally spend every, you know, even 25 years later, he would be out front sure. welcoming all the families, yeah. all the drop-offs. Yeah. And so, you know, he made a decision that to be successful, other than hiring, of course, better teachers and building out the classrooms and all the traditional table stakes, right. that from a cultural point of view, he wanted to differentiate on, on culture sure. versus on pure Right. How many pencils right. per student? Right, and it wasn't a PDF file or right. a video, right. but it, right. was, it was him out there in right. front. Right, and literally pressing the flesh. Yeah. So, and this gets back to the issue of leadership, where the leader has to set an example. Mm -hmm. And I had mentioned John Sexton teaching all over the world. But although Walmart is not in our book, Dave Scott, the CEO of Walmart, former CEO of Walmart, was famous for always flying coach. Mm-hmm and staying in Motel 6 type places to demonstrate and illustrate that the core of the Walmart culture was cutting costs sure. and keeping them low. It's cool stuff. As Just as a final question here, we at the AMA pride ourselves on, on our, what I'll call our noble cause, which is you know taking care of new managers, middle managers, aspiring leaders, people who have maybe for the first time in their lives been given a team or a budget or a project or a goal or something like that. What's in this book for a new manager? Yeah, the ability to learn from others' experience, good and bad, because oftentimes you know, everyone you know, harps on the perfect leader and the manager. Mm -hmm. But we found in this book there were more lessons in things that you should watch out for. Sure. And so hopefully they'll be able to read mistakes others have made. Sure learn from them, and figure out the right path forward. Joel? To get out of the office. That would be a lesson. That, That's cool. That very often for stagnant companies, you will find the CEO's offices on the top floor in the corner. Yep. I worked hard for that office, by the way, <laughs> Joel. Come on. <laughs> well, um, yeah. You know, it does have a good view. <laughs> the, the quote was, you know, the, find the seat furthest from the customer, and there that's you, where you find boom. the leadership of the company. In contrast, New York Life, as an example, their agents live with their customers. I mean, literally, yeah. in their neighborhoods. Yeah. They go to the same Little League games, yeah. the same local movie theaters. They know their customers' lifestyles. Sure. The, what, the phrase that we use in the book is they bathe with their customers sure. almost literally. We're, um, we're, we're, we're you. We're one of you. That's right. We're one of you, and that helps us understand you. And it's sure. not just a promotional sure. gimmick. It's true. We sure. know the needs of the people who live in the neighborhoods. We've been speaking to Alan Adamson and Joel Steckel, co-authors of a great new book entitled Shift Ahead, How the Best Companies Stay Relevant in a Fast-Changing World. Good luck with the book, guys. Thank you for inviting Thank us. Thank you. We're very happy to be here. Join the American Management Association group on LinkedIn to share insights with thousands of your management peers and to discuss practices in the areas of organizational management and leadership. 
To find us, simply search for the group American Management Association from your LinkedIn account. feedback very seriously here at the AMA. If you get a minute, you have some thoughts about this program or additional questions, just send an email to us at podcasts at amanet.org. 